Steve Aoki could throw a fucking party. The man was a fucking party. He wasn't just turning knobs and sending the biggest bass frequency into the crowd's collective chest. He was pouring Grey Goose into girls' mouths, throwing sheet cake into the audience, crowd surfing across the dance floor. Steve Aoki was one of 2012's highest grossing EDM artists, and for good reason. He constantly, relentlessly, and fully turned the fuck up. And here he was DJing a house party in Austin, Texas. Rocking out next to him, producer, multi-platinum artist, cultural centerpiece, and king of crunk, Lil John. John showed up wearing a shirt with Steve Aoki's face on it. At some point during the night, the shirt left Lil John's body and disappeared. Blame the temperature, blame the goose, blame the frenzy that these two had the entire room in. Claire Bogle, co-founder of the promotion company Scoremore, was handling talent. Yeah, dude, it was epic. It was so fun. Steve always puts on like a good performance. It's always high energy and like very inclusive and people go bug. A staple of any Steve Aoki performance was when Steve would break out an inflated lifeboat, jump in and fist pump as the crowd passed him around the room. He called it rave rafting. But on this night, Steve called an audible. Alicia Coleman, a local PR executive, had been alternately working the front door downstairs and running up to check on the talent. I'm on the stage and I'm looking at Little John and Steve Elkin. They're looking at me and I'm like, who are they looking at? I'm like trying to be, excuse my language, I'm trying to be incognito because there is no way my ass is getting in this float. And guess what? I ended up in the float. He fucking threw her in his tube and there's the funniest photo of her, like the funniest photo of her. They start handing me over the crowd. I'm like going back. I'm going away from the stage. And I'm like, no, no, no. The point, I need, I'm like, I need to get back. The Titanic is going down and I am the only person on the boat. And I was like, I remember I was like, where is she? Where is she? Like, you know, I need help. I like go upstairs to look for her. And she's like on this raft, like terrified. Like, get me down. <laughs> but also having the time of her life. Your first time on a roller coaster. <laughs> when you're going up the hill and it's like, chunka, 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 chunka. And it's like right there at the top and it just stops and all of a sudden just going down. You're like, oh my God, what's going on? And you don't know what's going to happen. And you don't know what turn is next because you're going so fast. Life is just coming at you so fast. I would say it's like that. It's exactly like that to a T. Alicia floated above the outstretched arms of 400 elated dancers. Past Steve Aoki bouncing up and down, past Lil John's shining grill and Oakley shades, and passed a skinny white 20-year-old. That kid, who shook the Justin Bieber haircut away from his eyes, looked around and thought to himself, damn, this is sick. His name was Mike Wax. He was a blogger. And this was his party. Osmi Rollins grew up in Southwest Yonkers, a blue-collar outpost 20 minutes north of New York City. The only people who called him SK were friends and family. Starting in 2005, when Osmi founded NotRight.com and put his nickname as the site's administrator, SK had become larger than life. Rappers begged for SK's approval. Bloggers tried their hardest to be SK. Giant corporations put a huge target on SK's back. By 2012, SK was forced to consider who was SK really? Where it's the real. And this is episode 10, Unplugged.
The Charles Johnson House, a 150-year-old banquet hall regularly rented out for weddings, receptions, and company picnics, was located two and a half miles from downtown Austin, Texas. During South by Southwest, an event with hundreds of thousands of attendees that radiated through every bar, restaurant, and concert venue up and down 6th Street, making your way to the Johnson House was a big commitment, especially with no Ubers allowed to operate in the city. But against all odds, in the middle of March 2012, South by Southwest's most poppin' party took place at the Johnson House, all day and all night for almost a week straight. Every major rapper showed up and crowds parked themselves on the front lawn begging, pleading, and sometimes fighting to get in. The party was called The Ilmore, a partnership between Illroots, which was Mike Wax and Mike Carson's Chicago-based blog, and Scoremore, the Austin-based concert promotion startup run by Claire Bogle and Sasha Stone Gutfrund. Sasha was the only one old enough to legally drink. Here's Bun B. Well, you got to remember, Ilmore was created by teenagers who have no idea what they're really getting themselves into. They've got everything to gain and nothing to lose, and they're trusting their guts. They're like, look, let's just try to book bands that we like. And then when South By comes around, they feel like they have a unique opportunity to present their view of the culture in a city that Sasha has all the ties and all the links in, and Mike's got the outlet, he's got the platform and the voice. They put those two things together, and it's a match made in heaven. Mike Wax, who started Illroots.com during high school lunch periods only a few years before, didn't look much older than his first driver's license. Now a college dropout, Mike had the vision of a second semester senior. If a hip-hop blog were to come to life, it would look like this. It would look like a house party with artists, rappers, DJs, you know, models, just chilling, smoking, drinking. Maybe they'll jump on stage for fun. Like, it was very much like a real-life version of, like, what we were trying to do with the website. I remember, like, designing this flyer at my homie David's studio. And I went for a walk after I, like, sent it out. And I was like, whatever's about to happen, like, I'm going to come back and it's going to be, like, a little bit different after this. A couple years earlier, in 2010, Wax and Carson caught a ride down to South by Southwest from Chicago with the clothing designer Joe Freshgoods and nine others from Leaders 1354, the famed streetwear store. They all stayed in the same hotel room. This is Mike Carson. I think I had two beds. It happened in like 12 of the same that was like our first talk about Southwest. We all were there, like from Chicago, wide-eyed, and going to showcases, interviewing rappers, trying to get content, trying to get drops, and you know, just soaking it all in. That was such a cool experience. 2010 South by just literally sleeping on the floor of their hotel room, bouncing around the city, learning about it, and then you know that summer after that is when I met Sasha and Claire. And then the following year is the first Ilmore, and it was very impromptu. I believe it was going to be called Swag House. Thankfully, it wasn't. Instead, the first official Ilmore was a private house they rented in 2011 that hosted informal get-togethers for Kid Cudi or Wiz Khalifa or Kendrick Lamar. 
The house was gorgeous. Kendrick grabbed a bottle of red wine and started shaking it like it was champagne. And he popped the cork and they had these like beautiful wooden doors. It was like exposed raw wood. Like they weren't sealed by any means. And he just like shook that shit. It just like flew out as if wine would fly out and just soaked this door in like red wine. <laughs> um, yeah, and like from that moment, I was like, oh, this is gonna be something. <laughs> uh, yeah. Living only a couple hours away in Houston, Bun B was a regular at South by Southwest, going back to before hip hop was ever a presence. He was welcome to hit the Fader Ford stage whenever he wanted. Restaurant owners in Austin would give him preferential seating. And when Claire and Sasha rented the first Ilmore house, they threw Bun a birthday party, complete with cake and a speech. And when 2012 came around, Bun saw that those fun little kids were taking things seriously. Because this was the growth spurt of Ilmore. This is what Ilmore went from 5'10 to 6'4 in one summer. If anyone wanted to get into the party of all parties, you'd have to wait for a phone number to be tweeted out by the official Ilmore account. You'd respond with your own, and if you texted back fast enough, you'd receive an address to run to in the hopes of getting one of a limited number of admission bracelets. We were doing like mass text saying like, come to this location at this time and get a wristband. And like, it got to be like pandemonium in downtown. That was crazy. But if Wiz Khalifa, who detailed his daily exploits as the hottest rapper in the world on Juicy J's song, Every Day, wanted to get in, well, that was a different story. That's every day, getting this money, living large, in every way. That's every day, 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 that's every day. We was deep as hell, it was when we really first started recruiting everybody for Taylor Gang. So we were with Juicy, Lola, Chevy, everybody was there. I remember I had rented a house down there in Texas and we just mobbed the whole six streets but by the time we got to the Ilmore it was dark and we were all pretty much like blackout drunk I think Juicy had a performance that night I remember walking up on the lawn and we were all outside the first person that I seen was Beanie Siegel he was out there Prodigy was out there I remember talking to Prodigy for a minute because I'm a huge mob deep fan so I talked to P for a minute then we were all on the lawn I remember seeing all the ASAP niggas so I was chilling with Rocky and ASAP and everybody and Machine Gun Kelly was also out there and I remember Rocky and Machine Gun Kelly had a little issue that they was fixing the handle at that time so I remember squashing a a fight between ASAP and MGK for sure Inside the mansion there was a beautiful mix of fans creators admirers and artists including Wiz Juicy J ASAP Mob Machine Gun Kelly Solange Mac Miller, Meek Mill, Travis Porter, Kendrick Lamar, Chance the Rapper, A-Track, Diplo, Bun B, Burner, Chevy Woods, Smoke Dizza, and Big Sean. Yeah, the houses were crazy, man. It was just like a whole bunch of just fucking like people, like girls, like, oh damn, there go Wiz, oh damn, there go Mac Miller, oh damn, here's, oh shit, what's up? No, everybody was just in there performing. 
This is producer Chasen Cash. It literally was like, damn, we all from the same generation. The Ilmore was kind of like a place of certification, almost like how the Source Awards was for hip hop. It was like a home for us. A lot of times if you was a part of the blog era and you did rap, it was almost like you had this ceiling on you, like, oh, like y'all just internet rappers. You get in a room full of internet rappers and you feel at home and it was kind of like, okay, this is where this shit is going. That's what I felt at the Ilmore. There were also enough drugs in the building to make it feel like a scene from the feature film about the most ridiculous house party ever called Project X, which hit theaters two weeks beforehand. From the moment we got to the Ilmore, you could smell that shit on the drive up, bro. It was insane. And then when you got in there, it was so many people just room to room, area to area, just sitting up there smoking, pulling out weed. And I just think there was a level of, I don't give a fuck in the building. I think it was the fact that people felt safe and knowing that it wasn't no police around that was gonna come through and jam them up. It was motherfuckers in there doing shrooms. I remember that shit, it was passing out shrooms, chocolate shrooms, regular shrooms, gold cap, blue cap. It was literally a mixture of everything. And at the center of it all was a stage set up in a room on the second floor. There was no air conditioning. The speakers went to 11. The crowds were way beyond capacity. But if you were a hip-hop artist in Austin that week, there was no way you wouldn't stop by. It became this urban legend or something that artists were like, oh, we gotta go to the Ilmore. They were hyping it up. People in the entourage, yelled, the Ilmore, man, you're not performing at the Ilmore, so these guys would just pull up and perform. I'm sure like maybe a few people got paid, but it was definitely not the big artists that people know the Ilmore for. Juicy J, the Oscar-winning rapper from Memphis, known mostly for his bouncy and smoky work in the group 3-6 Mafia, had recently released solo material with the producer Lex Luger, which gave him new life on the internet and got him signed to Wiz Khalifa's imprint. Juicy's performance with every member of Taylor Gang alongside him at the Ilmore would prove most memorable. This is producer Cardo Got Wings. Man, it was a gang of us all on stage, man, just going crazy. And then Juicy Jake is up there, and then, you know, he goes, Check him out! It was literally people on top of people. And the illest part of the night was Juicy when he dropped uh, Slob on My Knob. And he's like, how many y'all know this song? Slob on my knob, like corn on a cow. Check in with me and do your job. Lay on the bed and give me head. Run a train. The crowd goes fucking bananas. Like, nigga, everybody jumping up and down. You could feel the floor going like, like it's like doing CPR almost. Claire Bogle watched in amazement. She grew up in a minuscule town near the New Mexico-Texas border, but her musical interest led her far beyond the Southwest, thanks to the outposts across the internet. I definitely was a lone wolf, and that was my community. The blogs were my community. A year out of high school, Claire found her way to Austin, and she and Sasha tried their hand at promoting concerts with young artists that they believed in. They founded their company, Scoremore, and devoted all their time to pitching themselves as the next big thing. They'd book artists like Kendrick Lamar or Big Sean for her Houston-Austin-Dallas mini-tour, and Claire would personally drive the artists and their teams squeezed into her pickup truck. That good work and goodwill all led to the 2012 Ilmore, 
the beginning of all of this, before anything, like I'm a fan. I'm like a super fan of music and what we were doing. So to kind of like be at the epicenter at the precipice of that and realize that it was only going to go up from there was a moment, a feeling I wish I could capture because it was such a high. It was such a rush. And I was like so excited for my friends, whether it be Wax or Mac or Wiz or fucking Kendrick. The fact that there was so much hysteria around this party just because they were there, I was like, damn, that's so sick for them. This is like the beginning of their careers. This is awesome. You know, for us, it was a proof of concept. You know, we do actually have kind of good taste. We do actually know what we're doing. <laughs> I was like so overjoyed at the fact that all of us collectively in that space, we were next to the bloggers were there. They were the next posts or whatever. And like the artists were there. They're the next big things. And like, we're there. We're the next promoters and like tastemakers. That's ultimately what ended up happening. Like everybody that was there ended up going and doing exactly what they wanted to do with no restrictions. And I definitely like felt that energy. Back when Mike Wax was a student at Staples High School in Westport, Connecticut, He wasn't much interested in spending time with many kids his age. I would eat my lunches in the computer lab while I'm like making ill roots, learning Photoshop, using like a private browser to go on MySpace and like figure that out. My friend Will Jacobson, who was from BK and was like going to school at my high school for whatever reason, he like started giving me mixtapes. One of those mixtapes was the game's Stop Snitchin', Stop Lying, presented by DJ Clue, DJ Ski, and New Jersey Devil and it blew young Mike Wax's mind. The music and the artwork had him inspired, and he needed more. He made regular trips down to Canal Street in Chinatown to buy every mixtape he could find. When one of the mixtapes had a rap mullet logo on the bottom, he looked into it and found a hip-hop forum with debates and reviews and even graphic design mixtape cover battles. Wax would start his own rap mullet. The world outside Connecticut, whether a lunch period messaging with up-and-coming rappers or a 90-minute train ride into New York City to see Asher Roth and the Cool Kids perform, was much more exciting. I remember like somehow stumbling upon Not Right when Kingdom Come dropped and like became obsessed with Not Right. The ultimate grail of a site if you're like tapped in, like doing God's work, SK is a, is a legend, so... I don't know, just sort of like saw versions of things that I wanted to have my own version of. Here's Dominique Maldonado. I do really remember feeling like Ill Roots, when they started, felt like it was a little bit different. It felt like a much, much, much younger perspective. And I know that Mike was really young. And obviously he was starting his blog after all of these others were a few years in the game. I remember thinking that there was something a little bit more curated about what he was doing. And I hope that doesn't get me in trouble. So I think everybody from that era is really amazing in their own respect. I just remember thinking that what he was doing was different. Illroots.com was doing so well that by the time Wax graduated high school in 2009, Complex cut him a $15,000 check for one month of advertising. Wax enrolled in Columbia College in Chicago but even he knew he wouldn't last. He was working on Ill Roots on his laptop in class. So I just wanted to continue doing that when I moved to Chicago. I mean, that was a huge part of why I wanted to live in Chicago was because I knew they had such a cool music community and like that it would be a good fit for me and what I'm doing. And then, you know, obviously it met Mike Carson. Yeah, so Mike went to Columbia College as well. I think he had a class 
with some guys I went to high school with. They were like, yo, this dude Mike Wax, he's in our class. I was enough into hip-hop blogs to know, like, oh, it was something I checked. So me and Mike Link, and at the time I had a camera and I was fresh, you know, living in downtown Chicago, like just trying to film everything, filming my friends in 7-Eleven, just like always filming. At the time, there was no video aspect of the roots outside of Mike filming interviews on a flip cam. So I kind of provided that video aspect. Throughout the blog era, there'd always been a dividing line. You either posted the art or you made the art. Of course, there were those like Charles Hamilton or Kanye West who were themselves the art. But generally speaking, a blogger was a blogger. Mike and Mike, freshmen in art school, decided that they didn't have to fit inside some box. They were much more than aggregators or armchair A&Rs. And Illroots was much more than a blog. I remember I used to get mad when people would be like, yo, you're like a blogger. And I was like, no disrespect to bloggers, but that was like not what I set out to do. My background and my like thought process to all of this stuff was never like blogging, right? It was just like making stuff. So Mike having access and Mike having a lot of great ideas and me being like hungry and like having a camera, it's like, oh, who doesn't want a free music video? So I think Chip the Ripper was the first one we did where it was like, we'll film your music video, we'll host it on our YouTube and we'll premiere it. The Mike's Collective Toolbox allowed them to direct and produce music videos for Big Sean and Mac Miller, to design and execute high-concept merch, and yes, to premiere music like Kanye's remix to his song Power, all under the Ill Roots banner. I think we were so young at the time, we probably weren't like thinking about it from like a holistic, this is what this can be. At least I wasn't, Mike probably was, but I think it was just all organically happening. And it was because of our interests being like two visual artists and like people who like doing stuff, I think we just naturally did more. A journalist, obviously, their thing is like writing the best thing, right? But for us, like making the best, whatever we feel like doing that day. Illroot's taste level caught the attention of RSVP gallery owners, fashion designers, and Kanye West confidants, Don C. and Virgil Abloh, who brought Wax and Carson into their circles, shared their resources, and began to collaborate with them. To be honest, meeting Kanye and then having to go back to class the literal next day was like, as you can imagine, it'll warp your entire brain. Like, nothing I could focus on. Imagine like growing up being a kid, like obsessing over Kanye West, and then being at school for a year, and you know, you hear this whole speech about the trajectory of your career and all this stuff, and less than a year later, you're meeting Kanye West and filming him, and then having to go back to class, it's like nothing anybody in school was saying mattered to me. So it was very fast for me, at least first, where I was like, you know, a year into it, I was like, okay, this is insane. From the time of meeting him to watch the throne, I think it was maybe like six months. We met him the day Runaway premiered on MTV, the movie. And so he was finishing Dark Fantasy. I remember like Sway was in the studio. He was like playing it. And from there, I think it was quiet for a while. And then all of a sudden we had to like get passports. So I ball so hard, motherfuckers wanna find me. But first niggas gotta find me. 
What's 50 grand to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Ball so hard, this shit crazy. Y'all don't know that don't shit phase. And that's the go. Oh, for 82, when I look at you like this shit crazy. Kanye West and Jay-Z hired Mike Wax and Mike Carson to travel around the world with them, documenting the process of creating their album, Watch the Throne, highlighted by that song, a single so catchy they'd later perform it nine times in a row at concerts. Mike and Mike dropped out of college in the middle of their sophomore year, and it wasn't long after they returned to the States that they headed to South by Southwest to experience the Ilmore 2012. Just three years before the Ilmore, SK had been the toast of 6th Street, and now Wright had the hottest party in Austin, Texas. Three years before that, now Wright was nothing more than a local saying around Yonkers, New York. So you know I rep Block St. Andrews, obviously. That's the banner image of the site for years. You have to understand, when I was probably, you know, in junior high, I was starting to write graffiti and run around and get into trouble here and there and shoplift and and do all the things that you you do when you're that age and you're uh, finding out all the joys that the street brings. So I got into a lot of beef with numerous people from my own neighborhood, got into fights, got jumped. Won some, lost some, but eventually, like, you know, we sorted all of that beef out and I was at a place where, okay, you know, I'm all right in the neighborhood. I don't have any problems with anybody. Everything is good. So one day I'm outside and I'm hanging around with a bunch of kids from the block. These are like younger kids, you know, maybe about a a grade or so younger than me. One of them, he's kind of the ringleader of this little crew, and he had a reputation as a fighter and as a troublemaker and as somebody who was always getting into it. And uh, me and him had had a personal beef that we had rectified at some point, and we were cool at that point. Uh, So we're outside, we're talking shit to each other. You know how it is. You're standing on the block, you're cracking jokes. And I said something to him. I don't remember what it was, disrespected his mother in some way so he just hauls off and sucker punches me (laughs) right in the face i get angry i'm I'm wilding out like what the fuck i thought we were cool i didn't want to get jumped so i walked away went to my house no big deal nothing hurt but my pride obviously i was not in a good headspace the next day my boy fila is like my brother he hears about it he comes to my house he knocks on my door and he's like Yo, SK, what the fuck? What happened? I heard this kid snuffed you and you didn't do shit. So I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I was by myself. I didn't know what was going to happen. He's like, I don't want to hear that shit. Let's go. You're going to fight him right now. So I'm like, right. I, I throw my clothes on. He brings me straight to the middle of St. Andrews. You know, look, I'm new on the streets. Like, you know, I'd had fights. I've been in, in situations, but I wasn't exactly a tough guy. You know, I was still figuring out who I was just walking into a hostile block to shoot a fair one with somebody that has a reputation as a scrapper wasn't exactly what I was trying to do that day. Fee grabs me, takes me over there. We find the kid. He's like, SK wants the fair one right now. So we shoot the fair one. Uh, I didn't win, but I didn't lose. And, um, you know, it's over in a minute or two. And immediately after we fight, the kid daps me up. Me a hug, and he's like, "Yo, respect." 
I stood up for myself and I held my own. And, you know, people respected that. By 2012, the audience that drove NotRight.com started migrating elsewhere. The money brought in from advertising had dried up. The artists, Drake, Big Sean, Wiz Khalifa, who all began their careers working every angle to earn a post on Not Right, had graduated to the top of the Billboard charts. His partners at Complex had grown tired of pushing for change out of Eske. They'd build their own Not Rights without him. Complex's then vice president of content operations, Bfred. The business continued to grow. And a lot of those sites were still just focused on the paid views, you know what I mean? And they weren't really evolving to do experiential stuff and to do branded content. There's ways that blogs could have evolved more, but arguably they would have not been blogs anymore. You know, they would have been something else. The easy thing to do would be for SK to walk away and lick his wounds. I felt like blogs were doing a lot of things that people were doing video. People were going out and interviewing artists and doing all types of quote-unquote new media stuff. And I kind of felt like, yeah, I could do that, but if I can't do it to the level that I want to do it, then I'm not even going to bother. And I'm just going to keep doing what I do best, which is highlighting the best music quickly, adding my little commentary in where I can. And, you know, it's worked for me so far this many years. It'll continue to work for me. Fresh Alina, from her site Crunk and Disorderly, tipped her cap to SK. At that time, their opinion wasn't for sale. I feel like everybody has a price now. Whatever they said, that's what it was. And it was just a level of realness that nobody cared about being friends with a celebrity. Nobody cared about what the label had to say. Nobody cared. It was just all about the conversations that you wanted to have and opinions that you wanted to share that I feel like made me personally connect with all of the different sites that I would go visit that came from that world of hip-hop. But once it started being a profitable industry, what more profitable for everybody? Like, people like me were honestly always making money. But, like, when everybody could eat and when people started to want to rub shoulders and sit at the table with the cool kids and all whatever, that's, they, they gave the game a black eye. And it's just, I think it lacks a level of authenticity. SK had never been mixy. Nights out with the New York bloggers were few and far between. He got all the offers to fly out here or there, to go to parties. But that wasn't him. He said no. He wasn't backstage. He wasn't in all the videos. He was opening emails and listening to music. If he saw friends, it was the same ones from Hip Hop Mondays. He put his all into his site. Not just for the platform that gave a young J. Cole a cosign, but for whoever the next J. Cole would be. Just ask J. Cole's manager, Ibrahim Hamad. That was our last form of curation. That was the last form of like, if you made it here, you were good enough to make it here. You know what I mean? Whether that was true or not, that was just a perception. Okay, now I posted this, I should click on it because I trust not right. You know what I mean? I trust SK's taste. I should click on this and listen to this. But it's so hard to look at the world with a rose-colored tint when all you're staring at is the artificial light from a computer monitor. 
Here's Mecca from Two Dope Boys. Our world, unfortunately, is very disposable because a lot of people in our world only mess with you or quote-unquote respect you or quote-unquote like you because of what you may be able to do for them. I definitely remember Shake had lost a grandparent and he's like out of it because he was really close with, I believe, his grandfather. People are like on Twitter, I'm so sorry to hear that. Want to check out my music? Like, come on now. Are we not allowed to be human? Are we not allowed to have feelings? Or are we just perpetually supposed to be at your service chained to our computers? Part of SK's job when he worked in IT was to be on call on weekends to provide support to executives and salespeople who were traveling and needed help with their laptops. Whether Eske was at a bar with friends or at dinner with his wife, if he got a page about work, he had to jump to attention. Blogging kind of turns into the same thing at a certain point. It was like, yo, I'm out, it's Saturday night, but like, Jay-Z just freestyled a Hot 97. What are you gonna do, bro? You gotta get home and post that. So it became the same thing and it was like, it was cool. That's where that sense of like competition comes in. Like, oh, am I gonna be the first person to post this? Or not even about the competition. It's about like, yo, this is a new Jay-Z freestyle. This is a new Nas freestyle. Or there's some new beef popping. Like, we need to cover this just as a matter of fact. But um, then there was a point where it just became too much, you know, like it completely takes over your life. This is my only job and I'm doing it from the time I wake up in the morning until the time I go to bed at night. And in the later days when we really went to streaming only, music was dropping at midnight on Mondays and later on Thursdays and you never knew what was coming and artists were dropping exclusives and it was just... It was a lot, you know. SoundCloud was founded in 2007 by two Swedish college students who hoped to do for sound what Flickr did for still images and YouTube did for moving ones. Their streaming platform, which allowed creators to upload files for free and listeners to subscribe and publicly leave comments, caught on immediately. In just over a year, there were one million users in the SoundCloud community. By 2012, that number exploded past 15 million, thanks to its cool orange and very embeddable design. And lots of venture capital money helped too. It was everywhere. For listeners, SoundCloud provided a streaming service available at home or at work or wherever there was a web browser without the fear of viruses or pop-up ads. And best of all, there were no middlemen telling you what to listen to. Even Ha from On Smash recognized that SoundCloud users did not want anyone to hold their hand. I honestly was fascinated by SoundCloud because here was a one-stop shop where artists can actually upload their music to be shared and a whole ecosystem of collaboration and fan discovery. There was a time where the phrase, we need a board, was a rallying cry on Nawright. It was a Jay-Z line that SK and regular commenters referred back to when determinations needed to be made on questionable moments in culture. They didn't trust the people in place, so why not them? It was also the ethos of the New Music Cartel, the collection of seven websites that SK brought together based on taste, speed, and relationships. Those sites, 
Nah Right, On Smash, Misinfo.tv, Two Dope Boys, Exclusive Zone, The Jazz One, and You Heard That New, commanded respect for the better part of the last five years as the only gatekeepers that mattered. And just as Hoff and Lowkey and SK were once young disruptors who despised the system, there was now a new generation who were sick of the old bloggers. But instead of replacing one set of gatekeepers for another, these new kids wanted a free-for-all. Fuck a board. Tear down the gates. Here's Chuck English of The Cool Kids. What really destroyed it was the fact that there was no mixtapes to drop. If everything's streaming and you got to send a link through that, then what's the point of you having your site? Like, you're not even offering no exclusivity to shit. If you're just telling me something and telling me to go somewhere else to look at the shit, it's like my brain's going to turn off to that. Why the fuck would I need a taxi if I could just call an Uber? When Apple introduced the iTunes Music Store in 2003, they not only organized and streamlined legal downloading, they reinvigorated a singles market. Over the corresponding decade, consumers would amass tracks and create their own playlists for going albums. Artists would follow suit. Barriers to entry were falling down and falling fast. Producers no longer had to rent out a fancy New York City studio to get their drums to shake the block. They could download Fruity Loops to their laptop for free. Rappers no longer had to pay a professional to mix or master their session when they could do it themselves in GarageBand. And forget putting in those hours standing outside Hot 97 hoping to pass your CD to DJ K-Slay. You didn't even need to email SK anymore. Just upload your track to SoundCloud. Anyone could be a rapper or a producer or a DJ. And everyone was. More artists meant more music. Perhaps too much music. The flood of brand new names and tracks was overwhelming. Andreas Hale yearned for the intimacy of even a year earlier. The investment into an artist was so significant because you felt like you were part of what they were going to become. And because you owned it, be it downloads, whatever you had, when it was yours, it was yours. Gone are the days where I have a song that nobody else had. And I played in my car and people were like, yo, what the fuck is that? And I could say, oh man, I go to the site Two Dope Boys and if you, you can play it there. But I had it before you had it. I owned it but I owned it because of your blog. I owned it because of where I went to find that music because you told me what was dope. Now I was part of that community. Rappers who took to the internet between 2007 and 2012 had their favorite blogs, places they could rely on to represent above and beyond anyone else. And bloggers felt an equal sense of pride about artists that they wrote for as well. There was a special relationship between Sean Price and Na Wright. Kendrick Lamar and Ashley Outrageous, Lupe Fiasco and Fake Shore Drive, Gucci Mane and Miss Info. King Crooked had a kinship with two dope boys. It meant everything, man, because it allows us as artists and it specifically it allowed me to tell my full story, the story of who I am. And a lot of people, they're like, oh, here comes Crooked. He was on death row. He used to roll with a lot of killers. He always carried guns and shit. And that was just... That was the narrative surrounding me. It wasn't, oh, he was a father raising his kids, paying his mom's bills and 
helping his homies trying to get into the game. And none of the positive shit was there until the blogs came, you know what I mean? And I was able to express who I was and tell the story from my perspective and not allow what people's perspective of me to tell the story. You feel me? We go through shit, but it doesn't define who we are. Allow us to tell you who we are and you may find common ground. I'm just waiting on somebody to say they didn't fuck with the blog era so we can get out of it. You feel me? <laughs> that appreciation and trust was impossible to duplicate in the whirlwind of SoundCloud. Bloggers just couldn't care as much as they once did. To take every artist and every song that was uploaded every day as seriously as they had for the past five years was not feasible. Here's Loki from You Heard That New. When SoundCloud started to hit, they were like, oh, we don't need y'all. We don't need SendSpace anymore. We don't need ZShare anymore. We don't need none of this shit anymore. I can just upload myself and talk to people myself. And then my love just started to die off. But I didn't want to sit behind a computer anymore. And I didn't want to wait for emails and just stand up there. I'm like, I'm off this shit. Like, it was fun. I had a good time. Got a rush. Yeah, this is dying. There was a time when SK considered buying the domain weneedaboard.com. But that wouldn't be necessary. The playing field had shifted. A new board had voted. It was the website SK bought for $10 and went on to change the course of pop culture that needed saving. I mean, I remember going on a week's vacation to the shore with my family, and I spent the days in the hotel room vlogging while my wife is out with the kids and then hanging out and doing whatever I could later in the day. But, you know, I'm on vacation and I'm still working. When SK started Not Right, he didn't own a house. He lived with his parents. He wasn't his own boss. He operated on some middle rung of the corporate ladder. But that website and the posts he wrote and the time he spent, that was all his. Whether one person clicked through or one million, SK had created a utopia for himself. As the universe SK imagined expanded, what was originally his wasn't just his any longer. He answered to partners and advertisers and his children and loan officers and loyal commenters and frustrated rappers and David Benjamin and the fucking federal government and holy shit, his own shadow, the history he himself had made. What it came down to, it wasn't fun anymore, and it was kind of making me hate rap. Be careful what you ask for, you know, because you may think you want this job or whatever it may be in your life, and then you get it, and you love it for a while, but at a certain point, it becomes just a job. People get sick of jobs. People eventually want a new job, or they want to do something else with their life. So it's a real fine line between, like, letting something take over your life completely and ruining it or putting your all into it and being able to still enjoy it. And I was really getting to the point where I couldn't still enjoy it. Jay Smooth was the blogger that SK looked up to when he first lurked in hip-hop forums. How do you keep things even remotely close to being pure while they keep getting bigger and more lucrative? Is That's the whole story of hip-hop's history, right? Like, 
real old school hip hop heads feel like hip hop died as soon as it was put on wax by people from outside the culture, like Sylvia Robinson, who are coming in to make money. And from their point of view, what they're saying makes sense. That compromise leads to hip hop having the global impact it has today, where, you know, people around the world could pick up a public enemy record and be politicized. Um, and, you know, you see different stages of that compromise between art, culture, and commerce. Was SK a sellout for partnering with Complex if it allowed him to move his kids to a better school district? Was he a bad businessman? for balking when Complex wanted to put U.S. Army recruitment ads in his site, knowing that the majority of his audience came from underserved minority communities? Was he a lost cause without the Complex Media Network and their relationships? Andreas Hale famously quit his job as executive editor of music at BET.com in 2009, writing an open letter to the internet about the company's toxicity. Andreas knew far too well how giant corporations hardly ever sided with the culture. You don't need the corporate bigwigs. That's what the blog era did before people started saying they were stealing music. It created this atmosphere of you felt like you owned what was growing. You felt like you were a part of the rise of J. Cole. You felt like as a creator that you helped Nicki or Drake get to where they were. So the investment was so much bigger than financial. It was an emotional investment. And that ecosystem was built on passion more so than money. So when you have passion involved in something like that, in the music, it's hard to deny. And eventually, the corporate bigwigs will figure out, you know, I can put as many big-name producers, I can put as many ads out, but nothing's going to defeat the passion. But could a utopia ever really last? Radio executive and filmmaker Carly Hustle. No, it can't. I don't think it's possible. I think things that begin with the most humble of intentions that end up being attached to corporate brands, to big budgets, to larger agendas, to corner offices, to executives who aren't tapped in, but hey, this is what the kids are doing. Nine times out of 10, when that element gets involved, the purity of the original intent is diminished. It's co-opted and there's nobody that stands in the middle and says, hey, like, we need to have a balance here. And the thing is, is like, I'm not a proponent for people not being able to have successful businesses or being able to eat and pay rent. Like, it's unfair to expect an artist's purity for example, to mean that they can't put meals on the table. But the system is what's corrupt. It's not that the blogs were corrupt or that artists or art is corrupt. It's that in order to function in capitalism, you have to make all of these various deals with yourself, with your partners, in this case, with artists, with content, with labels, with managers. You're constantly making these compromises in order to sustain a business. And there's just no way, once the money and the power get involved, to maintain the integrity. A lot of times you might be on the path that I've basically been on, which is I'm going to be broke and keep doing things I love. <laughs> you might not be able to have it all. Botswana, small town little league player Pop Warner. Rock corners with hot blocks that's drug infested. Supply suppliers, my money say thug infested. <laughs> No disrespect to duck down records After this go round a nigga looking for the exit Peace, Peace.
Sincerely Pyrex Pachon. Cookie cut it and spit it on alright.com. For years, SK had fought. Fought perception, fought reason, fought entitlement and doubt, and expectations, and power, and himself. He was tired. Now Wright was born as a passion project, and for months, SK knew he'd lost the passion. I knew I was done. I just couldn't bring myself to stop. The ad revenue wasn't there. Like, I wasn't really making enough to justify the amount of time that I was putting into the site. My internet went down for a week. I think I had a storm in my neighborhood. My internet was knocked out. I couldn't post. At the end of the week, the internet came back up, and I was just like, you know what? I'm done. I never posted again, and then I let the server lapse payments, and that's just where we are. Just like that, now right disappeared. Gone went a website, and a history, and an archive, and career validation, and daily conversations with friends, and years of culture, and that whole bridge between Napster and Rap Caviar. Nick Catchdubs, whose career went from reporting the burgeoning Washington rap scene to collaborating with Wale on mixtapes, from DJing at parties on Lower Broadway to co-founding Fool's Gold Records with A-Track, understood how temporary the times were. It's a moment that was not super well documented for posterity. So like you'll be flipping through a piece of traditional vintage media. Like you can flip through an old Fader magazine and be like, wow, this weird little mention of a website is more acknowledgement of that thing existing than the website itself. Like no one pays hosting bills forever. Everything was ephemeral. Songs were put up and threatened with the law to be taken down. Free services like ZShare or SendSpace or HulkShare, where artists could upload introductory songs and unsanctioned remixes, would come and go. Snapchat, started in 2011, was a multimedia instant messaging app whose whole point was that the pictures sent would vanish after a short amount of time. In 2012, 20 million snaps were being shared and evaporated every day. Over time, Sites that offered curation and organization would fade into the ether. The Smoking Section, DC to BC, Real Talk New York, and thousands of others that meant something to readers and listeners and artists. In the early days of Mickey Fax and Kid Cudi's journey, Stephen Othello would join them on stops to the Soho Apple Store to use the computers there to email the blogs and hope that someone, anyone, would give them a listen. Different little random-ass sites that just did not last, but that's where we upload all of our, our content at the time. Before there was a SoundCloud, there was a ShareBeast. So we would upload there. The shit would have 100,000 views and 50,000 downloads. And where did that go? None of that's been preserved. Like all the block spots that were up during that time got taken down. All the MySpace pages that showed all the views that Drake was getting and Mickey had is now deleted. That era kind of got wiped away, and it doesn't exist. DJ Drama, Green Lantern, K-Slay, Clue, Envy, Duop, Kid Capri, and so many others had physical representations of their work, CDs and tapes, that were produced, 
sold, and traded. But if mixtape downloads on Datpiff didn't show up on Billboard, did that mean the music didn't count? For DJ Ski, who once collaborated with Charles Hamilton on eight digital albums released through eight different blogs in 2008, history itself was lost. There was no charts to reference. So people aren't going to go back and be like, in 2009, what was the biggest hip-hop mixtape? Like, no, you're going to look in the charts and see Flowrider or something, right? We're listening to these moments. We're listening to the Wayne mixtapes and like even Jeezy, my favorite Jeezy project ever. Forget the albums and stuff. It's Trap or Die, right? I'll still play that, but it's not legal technically. You know, like, can you go back and see the archives of Not Right? The blog era is unlike any other because even the record books have disappeared. It's like walking past where the sidewalk ends. Even in the past, when our primary sources were thrown out or broken or weren't transferred onto new technology, we still had diaries and notepads. But no longer can you interact with one of the NMC sites the same way. No longer can you call up a blog post about Lil B signing to Soldier Boy's label, or watch a stream of Joe Budden in studio, or press play on the first Nitty Scott song played on Misinfo.tv. Minya began her site as a chance to give a more full picture to her news reports from the center of the action. The ability to reflect the origins and the immediate moment is something very, very unique to hip-hop. And I think that that lends itself to why hip-hop blog culture was also unique. It was basically a way to reflect everything that was happening in the very second in hip-hop culture, but also because it was on the internet and had like unlimited bandwidth, it also was able to put everything in context by linking out. So it's both permanent and ephemeral. David Dennis, who grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and was accepted into the prestigious Medill Journalism School at Northwestern University, found more truth and more opportunity in writing for John Gotti at the smoking section during the blog era than he did for any professor. What's understated is that, like, the blog era really took over a multi-billion dollar music industry. The music industry was trying to dictate what people liked and what was going to be popular and what was going to be hot. And the blog era, which was like a handful of mostly like people of color without a ton of means, took down this industry just by ingenuity and hard work. Every morning for five years, Ray Rodriguez would drive across Long Island and settle into his cubicle at his customer service job. He'd open up his work email, plug in his headphones, and, ignoring the new parents to his right and the young kids to his left, navigated to nawright.com to dedicate the entirety of his workday to a world inhabited by those he cared most about. Ray could never find the conversations about the hip-hop he loved in any magazine. His voice would never carry in any barbershop. There were certainly no like-minded people in his corporate office. But when he signed into the comment section on Na Right, Ray was heard. Ray's opinion counted. Ray could be Ray. I tried to, and this is going to sound loftier than it ultimately is, but... The thing with my name, typing in comments under Ray instead of no limit, uh, 420. 
maybe I took myself serious enough to want to put that out there, but I didn't take this whole hip hop thing so seriously that I had to put something cool or tough sounding there. Like that wasn't my game. And aside from tangling with Nation a couple of times in the comment section, like I wasn't somebody that was just going to start sniping with people back and forth. And I think that that was a good perspective because I feel like other people that maybe liked a different kind of album or a different kind of sound, it was okay to bring that up in the context of hip hop. So if you liked a song that was quote unquote softer, it was okay to do so, or music with more emotional content. Two examples I'll give you right off the bat are when Kid Cudi's album came out, when Man on the Moon came out, it was a lot of qualifiers. It wasn't just, I like this music or I don't like this music. It was, I like this music because sometimes, you know, you just got to get high and zone out to it. And I'm like, no, this is just good. You're allowed to just like it. You're allowed to just be like, hey, turns out this album is really good. Joe Budden is another one. When he stopped putting out stuff with Def Jam and everything, that was the only place you could go to keep up with him. He was one of my favorite rappers for a long time, long, long time. And sometime around 2003, I got sick of rappers either threatening me or talking about how much more money they had than me. And Joe was not doing that. Joe was like, hey, I'm sad. Here's a rap about it. Or like, I'm psyched up and want to shove my success in people's faces. And I was like, yes, I can relate to these things. I can relate to being broken, angry, and wanting to shove things in the faces of people. So I feel like if I did have a contribution, it would be you didn't have to like what was necessarily the coolest, most hyper-masculine, chest-pounding kind of music. It would be okay to find different niches in there and have it be accepted as a valid opinion, as a valid almost genre within the genre instead of just having to go with what's selling or what's critically acclaimed or what goes the hardest or what's cooked lava crack fire. I don't know. Now Wright was uniquely home for Joe Budden and Kid Cudi and Ray Rodriguez. There is no Now Wright in 2023. When you type in nawright.com, nothing shows up. Social media posts under the account Now Right are few and far between. There's not even a Wikipedia entry for the site. There's no evidence that the birthplace for these artists and creators in today's pop culture ever existed. So if the legacy is lost, what then of the man? I mean... To be honest, man, I had some dark times there, say, a year and a half ago. You know, I mean, look, you know, I say that, but it's really like internal shit with myself. My life is fine. You know, like I have my family. Everybody's healthy. Everybody in my family is doing good. Me and my wife are maintaining. You know, I went through some financial struggles after I stopped doing the site, but... I'm much better now, but uh, yeah, man, there was a dark period there for like a year and a half, two years, and then honestly leading right into COVID, I wasn't doing great six months ago, you know, I was like mentally just not really there, you know, I wasn't happy with my job, I wasn't happy with the fact that I let not right disappear you know I started to feel regrets about it like maybe I should have kept going you know feeling like maybe I gave up or this and that but um you know and that's kind of why when you guys reached out to me I was like yeah I'm not really ready to have that conversation about not right you know like a lot of these questions you're asking me now like I didn't want to face it you know like why is not right not there anymore 
I just regretted it and I felt like I let my like you know I still see that as like the accomplishment I'm most proud of was creating not right you know like I mean aside from my kids and stuff but that was my greatest accomplishment and I just kind of let it go but then I have to remind myself to like I had to let it go because it wasn't making me happy anymore and if it's not making me happy and it's putting stress on me then you know what is it really worth to me what is it doing for me is it a benefit you know it's really not at that point after the bitterness and hurt and separation and depression After giving up the genre of music he loved more than most things in this world because it didn't love him back the same, SK found acceptance. I am working a regular ass nine to five job these days and listening to rap with no pressure of having to form an opinion on it or post it onto a website. Osmi Rollins is from Yonkers, New York. But St. Andrew's Place is where Eske was born. St. Andrew's is where Eske tagged, where Eske fought, where Eske debated, and where Eske dreamed. That St. Andrew's street sign wasn't just a picture atop a website. It was everything Na Wright represented. St. Andrew's was where Eske first heard a song with Biggie Smalls, the greatest rapper in the world, collaborating with a group from Yonkers, The Locks, Jadakus, Sheik Luch, and Styles P. I mean, speaking of success, it's the perfect success story. To make a difference, to make a change, and follow your passion, follow your heart, and to achieve your goal of success. You know, to set up and do something and get it done is success. People often, you know, just think success is how much money you make, you know, how much accolades you have. That's not the end all of success. Success starts with being able to accomplish something. And that's the most important part. You set your mind something and then when you do it in a place where the odds are against you and it hasn't been done before, it's truly a success story. So, you know, for him to be from... Southside Yonkers, because that's where St. Andrews is. You know, it's a rough place for him to be able to put his brain to do something that was um, so beautiful and beneficial and important. is an incredible thing. Even the way they blocked it out, you can't find the history shows how successful it was. Shows how importantly scary he was. Shows how powerful he was. It is. The Blog Era is executive produced for Other Tone by Pharrell Williams, Moses Shoyola, and Scott Benner. Executive produced for It's The Real by Eric Rosenthal, Jeff Rosenthal, and Steve Carlos. Produced by Greg Mayo and Osmi Rollins. Written, researched, and hosted by Eric Rosenthal and Jeff Rosenthal. Original score by Greg Mayo. Edited by Greg Mayo. Story edited by Timhotep Aku. Fact-checked by Brandon Callender. This has been the blog arrow.